Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, and Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17, read from the Common English Bible. Jesus was in one of the towns where there was also a man covered with a skin disease. When he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged, Lord, if you want, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand, touched him, and said, I do want to be clean. Instantly, the skin disease left him. Jesus ordered him not to tell anyone. Instead, Jesus said, go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses instructed. This will be a testimony to them. News of him spread even more and huge crowds gathered to listen and to be healed from their illnesses. But Jesus would withdraw to deserted places for prayer. After Jesus finished presenting all his words among the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion had a servant who was very important to him, but the servant was ill and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to Jesus to ask him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly pleaded with Jesus. He deserves to have you do this for him, they said. He loves our people, and he built our synagogue for us. Jesus went with them. He had almost reached the house when the centurion sent friends to say to Jesus, Lord, don't be bothered. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. In fact, I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. I'm also a man appointed under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and the servant does it. When Jesus heard these words, he was impressed with the centurion. He turned to the crowd following him and said, I tell you, even in Israel, I haven't found faith like this. When the centurion's friends returned to his house, they found the servant restored to health. A little later, Jesus went to a city called Nain. His disciples and a great crowd traveled with him. As he approached the city gate, a dead man was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the city was with her. When he saw her, the Lord had compassion for her and said, don't cry. He stepped forward and touched the stretcher on which the dead man was being carried. Those carrying him stood still. Jesus said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Awestruck, everyone praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding region. Good morning. My name is Megan, and I'm the teaching pastor here at Trinity. And last Sunday, we began a journey we're going to be making through Easter this year, through the Gospel of Luke. Um, Luke happens to be my favorite account of the ministry of Jesus. And just looking at 2022 coming into this year, I was feeling a real hunger in myself to just come back to the foundation of, of who we are as a community, as followers of Jesus. And um, our, we've been having a baptism class the last couple of months. We've been reading the Gospel of Luke together. And I just have been kind of amazed anew um, reading through the stories of Jesus of just like what the sweep of the story is we're a part of. Um, so that's what we're doing as we kind of walk our way through this gospel is coming back to the, the kind of foundation of Christian faith and asking who is this person that our faith is shaped around. So I invite you to pray with me this morning as we approach the Gospel of Luke.
God, thank you for the gift of your word, the book, and the gift of your word that is Jesus. Your defining revelation of who you are and what you desire for us and for the world. We pray that as we take a journey through your story, that our vision would be renewed, that our hope would be refreshed, and that you would be laying a path before our feet to walk with you faithfully and joyfully as disciples. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The hardest part of the Gospels, I think, for most modern people to know what to do with is the miracle stories. Um, We heard a series of three of those stories from Luke today. And, you know, if you look at kind of modern historians and what modern historians will tell you about Jesus, almost no credible modern historian will deny that Jesus lived and that he was a great moral teacher. Like, we have all sorts of evidence of that fact. Almost no modern historian will deny that Jesus died on a cross. Um, Because, frankly, that fact is too scandalous for anyone to have had a reason to make up. But most people have no category to know what to do with the miracle stories. Now, I don't know what you think as you read these parts of the stories of Jesus, but, you know, most of us, even if we don't literally cut them out of the Bible like Thomas Jefferson did, he just kind of sniffed around them and got rid of them, we tend to partition these kind of stories in, in their own kind of separate category that comes with a question mark. It's a little bit of an oddity. Maybe we feel like it's the teachings of Jesus that are essential, and we have this kind of non-essential category of strange stories that that we don't know quite what to make of. But let's speak first about these stories purely from a historical perspective. Um, Just thinking from a purely historical perspective, it's actually very hard to disentangle the story of Jesus from the miracles themselves for a couple of reasons. Um, one reason historically that it's, it's really hard to disentangle these miracle stories is, is simply the level of attestation we have about this. Um, the, the miracle stories of Jesus are not like a minor part of the historical record about him. They're, they're an enormous portion of that. Um, if you look at kind of other ancient figures, uh, Jesus is not the only ancient person that there are miracle stories written about. Um, But if you look at other figures that miracles are kind of credited to in the ancient world, what tends to be the case is they have a lot of stories of the teachings of this person and maybe like one or two miracles to toss in, right? Proportionally speaking, the miracle portion of Jesus' ministry is an enormous proportion of what's recorded about him, and that just isn't matched by any other historical figure we know of. In the Gospel of Luke, we have 20 of these stories, 19 of them in Matthew, 18 of them in Mark. Um, Even in the first century, there was this Jewish historian named Josephus, who was definitely not a Christian, and in his own kind of historical record of first century Palestine, he talks about Jesus as a person who was known for two things. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian, Jesus is known for two things. He's known for his wisdom, and he's known for his miracles. That's what historians in his own day write about him. 
But uh, again, speaking from a historical perspective, there's another reason it's hard to disentangle the miracles from Jesus. And that's that the story of Jesus and the, the kind of events, that key events that mark his life, just don't make sense unless you account for this aspect of what's going on. Um, one of the things that the miracles are really kind of crucial to is understanding the level of hostility that is kind of ginned up around Jesus. You might get the idea watching some of the Pharisees and the religious teachers of the first century that like Jesus is the only person walking around disagreeing with them, right? Because they're so upset. They're so hostile to him. Um, but in fact, there was a lot of competition for new ideas, for, for religious teaching in first century Palestine. Jesus was not the first person to show up on the scene and make big claims. He wasn't the first person to disagree with the, these teachers, the problem with Jesus was not just what he was saying. The problem with Jesus was he was doing stuff that made people actually believe him. Right? Like in the, in the marketplace of ideas, there's a lot of ideas floating in the current, but Jesus is actually doing things that make people take him more seriously than everybody else, and that makes him dangerous. If you look at what his enemies are saying about him, um, Jesus' enemies tend to say he's using demonic power to get this stuff done. That nobody is saying, not even Jesus' enemies are saying he's not doing extraordinary stuff. His enemies are just having to find a way to explain why that comes from somewhere other than God. And it's not just the level of hostility that's kind of tied to the, the miracle. It's also Jesus' popularity with the crowds. I mean, think about an ancient world where, where you have no mail service, you have no telephones, you have no internet. Jesus manages to stir the crowds into just a frenzy of excitement. He goes viral in a matter of months by word of mouth. Like, how does something like that happen? Why does it happen? Well, teachings are great. Good teachers are great. People can get excited about a good preacher now and then. But what really makes somebody go viral, what makes the masses just come pouring after Jesus, is that there are stories going around about things Jesus is actually doing for people. Now, one of the big mysteries of the gospel to me used to be the story of the calling of Peter and Andrew. If you remember the story that these two guys, they're fishermen, they're out floating on their boat catching fish in the lake, and Jesus comes by and says, follow me, and they just drop their nets and walk off. And I would always think to myself, like, what did they see? Like, what was going on in this moment that made them just suddenly, like, leave everything, their houses, their jobs, and follow Jesus? It seemed so out of the blue. Uh, what I never noticed before is that in the Gospel of Luke, before that moment, before the moment they drop their nets and follow Jesus, Jesus has already been to Peter's house where his mother-in-law is very sick with a high fever, and Jesus commanded the fever to leave, and she instantly was better, and she got up, and she served dinner. That event had already happened at the moment Jesus shows up at the boat and says, hey guys, you should come follow me. I mean, the, the miracles of Jesus are not easy to account for just as like a late add-on to a good moral teacher, because the whole course of his ministry, his popularity, his opposition, all of it is being driven along by the energy of something that nobody knows how to account for. Something that has got the emotion stirred up, that has movement happening, something people haven't seen before. 
So that, that's thinking for a second from a historical perspective, but let's shift over and talk theologically. Um, one of the things I think many of us don't recognize is that the teachings of Jesus and the actions of Jesus, that the healing, miracle-working ministry of Jesus are tied together and they actually rise and fall together. Like, you, you can't really take one without the other. When, when writers want to summarize Jesus' message, they, they tend to say that what Jesus went around preaching was a message that the kingdom of God has come near to you. That's what Jesus was telling everybody. The kingdom of God has come near. Well, what did he mean by that? Almost everybody in any period of history, first century, 21st century, almost everyone in all times have wanted the world to be better. We've wanted things to be different, things to change. So when Jesus goes around announcing the kingdom of God has come near, what he's actually announcing is the change you've been waiting for has arrived. A new era of history is starting right now where God is going to step into the world in a different way, take charge in a different way, which means the rules of the world are changing from here and things are actually going to be better. Now, that is a huge claim to make, right? To, to go, go up to someone and say, starting today, history is changing. This is a new era. Things are going to get better. Like, that's an enormous claim. There's no reason for anyone to believe that that's true unless you show them that something is different. Jesus goes around saying, the kingdom of heaven is near, something is changing, a new era has begun, and then he makes that claim credible by backing it up. Even when, when Jesus sends out his disciples, he, he tells them, I want you to go out and say the same thing I've been saying, I want you to go out and preach the kingdom of heaven has come near, and then he says to his disciples, and I'm giving you power to heal people and to drive out demons, because the message and the evidence backing the message can't be separated. If people are going to believe that a new era is starting, they have to see something new occurring, those two things are not just intertwined in the ministry of Jesus, but in the ministry he gives to the rest of his disciples. Now, another way that the miracles and teachings of Jesus are intertwined is that the miracles of Jesus are really critical to demonstrating his authority. Jesus goes around making these really huge claims that he gets to speak for God. He says, you've heard that it's said in the Bible, but I say to you. Like, that, that's a really radical claim, right? Jesus is saying, like, what I say is about to override everything you've heard before. That's a huge claim. And, you know, if you read these other accounts of ancient miracle workers in, in the ancient world, um, one of the things you'll notice is that there, there's a pattern in the stories of miracle workers in the ancient world that what happens when somebody performs a miracle, they see somebody sick, and they pray for them, and the person gets better. Now, what's strange about the stories of Jesus is they break, the stories of Jesus break the pattern of known accounts of other miracles in the ancient world because what happens when Jesus heals is often that he simply gives a direct order and the thing happens. Now, we heard that in some of the stories this morning. This military commander comes to Jesus and says, my servant is sick, will you do something? And Jesus is going to come and, you know, touch him and pray for him or whatever. And the, the man says, hey, I give orders, just give the order and I know it'll be done. And Jesus gives the order and it's done. 
There's another famous story where Jesus is walking through a packed street and this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years comes and just grabs the back of his robe and she instantly stops bleeding, right? Jesus hasn't prayed. He hasn't done anything on purpose. The power has just gone out from him. We have other kinds of stories where Jesus and his disciples are caught in a storm and it's rocking the boat and Jesus stands up and says to the wind, stop blowing, and it stops, These are distinctly different kinds of stories than any other kind we know of. Jesus is issuing direct commands. He's commanding disease, he's commanding weather, he's commanding spirits, and those things are responding directly through the authority of Jesus' voice. And this is even distinct from the miracle stories we see in the book of Acts and in the later Christian church when the disciples heal They don't just command that it be done. They lay hands on people and they pray. Jesus is acting on his own authority. Other people act in his name. Um, Something distinct is happening in Jesus when he speaks and something is done. Now, a third way that the miracles and the teachings of Jesus are really intertwined is that the miracles are really crucial to the message that Jesus is giving people about who God is. Um, The the first story that we read this morning from Luke chapter 5, it it was really important to me that we hear that story. This is the first kind of full healing story, uh, aside from the healing of Peter's mother-in-law in in the Gospel of Luke. And I think it's no coincidence that the first kind of full-length healing story involves this conversation between Jesus and a person who says to Jesus, if you want to, make me better. If you want you can do this, right? The, the question that is on the table in this, this first kind of major healing story is not whether Jesus can heal. It's not whether God has the capacity to do something about this man's problem. It's a question of desire. This man looks at Jesus and says, like, I don't know if God wants to make this better for me. And Jesus speaks for God when he says these Fierce four crucial words. I do want to. I do want to. I want you to be whole. Jesus is speaking for God when he says this. In one of the other stories we heard this morning, Jesus is walking through town and he sees this funeral procession go past. And there's a young man who's lying on the kind of the funeral litter that they're carrying. And Jesus' eyes are instantly drawn to the mother rather than to the son. Because he can see from looking at her, this woman is a widow. She doesn't have a husband. This is her only son, which means not only is she suffering a personal loss, from here she is doomed to isolation and to complete poverty for the rest of her life. And Jesus sees this and he's just moved. Like his gut just kind of churns with compassion. And he walks straight up to the stretcher and he puts his hand on it. And in front of the entire village, everybody sees the kid sit up. I mean, this is a healing that is, that is kind of spontaneously prompted by just this churning compassion in the gut of Jesus. And this is one of the things that observers constantly notice about Jesus. Jesus is moved by people. Jesus is moved by the sight of people's pain. 
And the claim being made here is that God is like this. This is not just some kind of random quality Jesus is exhibiting. God is moved in the gut by the pain of human beings. God is moved with compassion. God has this deep longing for for people to be whole. If the question is like, God, do you want to do this? The answer Jesus gives is, I do want to. I do want it to be better. God is like this. So so, so these miracles of Jesus and these teachings of Jesus, there's this really integrated connection. If I were gonna sum it up in a sentence, this is what I would say. The miracles show us how the world is. And the teachings tell us how to live in a world that's, that's that way. The miracles tell us how the world actually is. The teachings tell us how to live in a world that is that way. How, how is the world? What do the miracles tell us about how the world is? Well, the world is a place that is ruled by a God who is compassionate in God's bones. The world is ruled by a God of mercy, and the world is in a process of turning toward wholeness. The world is in this process of moving toward wholeness. It's open to the intervention of a compassionate, merciful God. That's how the world is. So how do we live in light of it? Like, what what does Jesus say? If that's how it is, what does it mean to live in a world like this? Well, I'm pretty convinced that all of the teachings of Jesus about living could be summed up in two major themes. Like, if that is what the world is like, there are two big things for how we live as a result of it. Um, Number one, be merciful as I am merciful, Jesus says. I mean, there's a constant call that just comes up again and again and again in Jesus' teaching that his disciples are supposed to emulate the character of God. I mean, it's kind of commonly known and accepted that the core of Jesus' teaching is the love principle, but this love principle, this is where it comes from, right? Like, we are merciful because God is merciful. We are called to be loving because God is loving, I mean, Jesus says all of these things that tie these together. He says, forgive as you've been forgiven. Don't judge and you won't be judged. Blessed are the merciful for you will receive mercy. With whatever measure you use, it's going to be measured to you. Love as I have loved you. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect in loving everyone. I mean, teaching after teaching of Jesus, it all comes back to this kind of same core thing. The ethical calls of Jesus are based fundamentally on an assumption about who God is. God is merciful. God is compassionate. God is determinedly working toward wholeness everywhere. So you go and be likewise. I mean, every every radical command to generosity, to sacrifice, to love, to non-judgment that we get is all based on that first premise that God is that way, so we should be too. I mean, the other thing that all of these teachings, these radical ethical teachings assume is that the world is open to the intervention of God. I mean, Jesus says all this like really kind of challenging, extreme stuff. He says, seek the kingdom of God first. 
He, he commends us to share everything we have, not just part. He says, turn the other cheek when your enemy hits you. These are crazy things to do unless you are living in a world where God is present and actively involved. Like these would be crazy things to do if we are not living in a world where God cares and is active. The ethical teachings of Jesus, his, his calls to enemy love, his calls to sacrifice and generosity and love, all of those ethical teachings are based on a core revelation of how the world is. It is open to the work of a merciful God. If the world is not what Jesus claims that it is, if the world is not ruled by a compassionate God, if it is not open to the intervention of that God, the radical ethics of Jesus are unthinkable. He never meant those two things to be separated. They go together. So that, that's one big kind of theme of the teachings of Jesus. If the world is like this, we should be merciful as God is. I think the rest of the teachings of Jesus could be summed up in a second big phrase. If the world is like this, we should be persistent and bold in seeking God's intervention in it. We should be merciful as God is merciful, and we should be persistent and bold in seeking God's intervention. I mean, it's almost amazing when you read straight through the Gospels just how big this theme is in Jesus. He's constantly telling people, ask big, ask. Ask in my name, ask for what you need. Now, again, going back to these other historical accounts we have of other miracle stories, um, one of the things that makes the healing stories of Jesus very different from other ancient accounts is that there's a big emphasis in the healing stories of Jesus on the faith of the person involved as being important. Now, a lot of us, I think, can get tangled up on that point because we're, we're really aware how much this has been abused. Maybe you've known someone who's been blamed for their own sickness as if they didn't have enough faith. Um, this is not the way this principle is used in the stories of Jesus. The point here is not to assign blame. Whether healing does, happens or it doesn't, there are all sorts of factors that might be involved in that situation. I mean, Jesus actually, there, there are certain points where people come to Jesus and they're like, I kind of believe Jesus, but I kind of don't. I kind of doubt you. And Jesus, turns out, doesn't need unmixed faith to work with. He's able to heal people who doubt too. Right? So, so, so the principle here is not that your faith has to be perfect and complete for anything to happen. It's not to say you're to blame if something doesn't. But the key point here is that God's power is available in the work for restoring things. God's power is available in the world for making things whole. God wants to do it, but there's a crucial participatory dimension. The way that God has designed the world is such that God is active, God wants things to be whole, God is willing to act, but human participation in that process is really important. I mean, for, for healing to come, we have to be willing to let sickness go. This is one of the reasons Jesus has, was known to ask people occasionally, like, do you want to be well? If healing is going to come, part of our participation has to be a willingness to let the sickness go. Um, but there's this bigger principle in, in Scripture that the way that God is choosing to work in the world is that God desires partnership. 
Most of the things that God is going to do in the world are going to happen because some human being has chosen to partner with God to invite God's presence into this situation and invite God to do what God wants to do. There's no strict rule on who that has to be, right? Sometimes in the stories of Jesus, the faith comes from the person being healed. Sometimes the faith comes from the friend who dragged him by the scruff of their neck into the room, right? This isn't, this isn't legalistic. This isn't magic. But, but God chooses to work in partnership. And most of the time when God acts in the world, it's because somebody opened the door. The job of a disciple is not to control the outcome, to force something to happen. The job of a disciple is to throw the door open boldly, invite God in, and dare to believe that God cares enough to show up. When I was in seminary, I had a chance to work with a a pastor who, um, you know, sometimes when you're talking with pastors, one of the questions that comes up is like, how did you end up being called to ministry? Um, I've never heard a story like this. Um, This man told me that when he was in his 20s and 30s, he was living kind of a wild life. He was sowing his wild oats. He was doing his thing out in the world. And he got really sick out of the blue. He went to the hospital and he was declared dead. And he woke up in the middle of his own funeral. There were people in the village who were there to see this happen. And you know, he woke up in his funeral and he thought, maybe God is calling me to ministry. I met this man a couple decades into this journey, and two days a week, I I believe it was Tuesdays and Saturdays, he would get up way before dawn, like three o'clock in the morning, and he would go and sit outside, and people would come to him from all over the country, many of whom had walked all night to be there, to ask him to pray for them. Now, this is a country with very little healthcare access. This might have been the only thing they had available to them. Um, But often we would sit around at night, um, those of us who were working at this, this church parish, and people in the village would tell stories of the things that they had seen happen after this man had prayed for people. Like, incredible stories. And it wasn't that it happened every time. It wasn't that there was any kind of guarantee. And yet something got him up two days a week praying for like 12, 14 hours a day for these people. And God, from time to time, showed up in ways that the whole village would be talking about. Now, it's always, you know, you you hear these stories and you have to kind of ask yourself, like, why don't we see more of this in the modern West? And I don't exactly know the answer. Um, I do know that we have a lot more ways to treat the body here. Um, Someone in my family had open heart surgery this week. And I I can certainly tell you that, like, sitting in the waiting room after that surgery, it it just really struck me the miracle that modern science is, right? Like, we can sew hearts back together. That's crazy. That's a miracle all all on its own. But it, it also strikes me more and more, like, the longer I work in ministry, that we in Western societies, we have all sorts of hospitals and medical care, but what we don't seem to have are many answers for wounds of the soul, Like, our chronic depression rates, our chronic anxiety rates have never been higher. Our loneliness rates are skyrocketing. We have people who've suffered deep trauma who are carrying it through their whole lives. There are generational patterns of destruction where one person does something terrible that wounds the next person who does something terrible who wounds the next person, and it just keeps getting passed on. Like, we have not kind of scienced ourselves away from the need for healing. Sometimes just the wounds that are lingering are different. 
Now, I guess as I kind of reflect on these healing stories of Jesus, uh, my take on this is not that I know all the answers to when it happens or why it happens, but that if we are going to take Jesus seriously at all, if we're going to take Jesus seriously at all, I don't know what excuse we can use for cutting this part of his ministry out. I don't know what excuse we could use if we're going to take anything he says seriously for the biggest claim he makes in his whole ministry, that God desires wholeness and that God is willing to offer more of it. That God desires wholeness for the world, that God is willing to offer more of it, and that there is power in the name and the presence of Jesus for turnings, for new openings. Jesus' own brother, James, wrote a letter um, long after Jesus had returned to heaven. And one of the things that James, Jesus' brother, says to, to other followers of Jesus is, you know, we don't have because we don't ask. Now, I don't think, what, again, what James is giving there is a guarantee. Like, if you ask, you always get it. But what James is saying is if you believe nothing and you risk nothing and you ask nothing, don't be surprised if you see nothing. Right? Like, maybe that is, the, that is the lesson we should be taking in the church in the West. If you believe nothing, you risk nothing, you ask nothing, you see nothing, and it becomes this kind of vicious cycle. The, the core message of Jesus, the, the fundamental core, is that the kingdom of God is near. God is near, the world is changing, and because not God is near, new possibilities are available that weren't available before. And what that says to me as a follower of Jesus is there is too much resignation in the church. We are too resigned to brokenness. We're too quick to say, this is just how things are. And you know, this resignation, like it comes from many of us with, like we, we really are committed to doing the work that we can with our own hands and our own cleverness to making it better. But when our own work, our own efforts fail, that's the point the resignation kicks in and we think, well, we just can't fix it. Right? I, I think living in a time that Jesus describes, living in a time when the kingdom of heaven is near, requires unresigning ourselves unresigning ourselves to these generational wounds that get passed down through families, unresigning ourselves to the wounds of neighborhoods, unresigning ourselves to the wounds of souls. I think it means daring to believe there is a compassionate God who is working in the world who has more tools than we do, who is, in many cases, willing to act if we open the door and invite that activity. It means taking the risk of acting and taking the risk of asking and believing something more might be possible. What would it mean for us to unresign ourselves to the brokenness we see around us? But we're going to come in right now into a time of communion. Communion is this, this act that is given to us by Jesus himself. This is one of the few kind of ritual gestures. Jesus says, I want you to do this. And he, he says, what I am giving to you in, in this bread, in this wine, I am giving to you my life. A life that was taken from me and yet returned. A, a life that even death can't snuff out. 
in the history of the church, this, this ritual of communion has often been associated with healing for that very reason. Like, this is the life of Jesus, taken and returned and offered to us. So as we come into communion today, I want us to just take a couple of minutes in prayer as we enter in. And just as much as we're able, crack the door. Whether we're doing this this morning on behalf of ourselves, on behalf of someone else we know and love, just to crack the door open a little with whatever mix of faith and doubt is in us and ask for the intervention of God. Ask for that inbreaking kingdom that Jesus proclaimed to come in this space. Let's just take a moment and pray together. God, we confess that all of us here today are a quivering mix of faith and doubt. There's the stubborn thread of hope in us that wants to believe you can do something, that wants to believe you would do something. And we have questions too of the times you didn't. We bring to you our hope. We bring to you our stubborn trust. We bring to you our honest questions. We bring to you our deepest doubts. We hear you knocking on the door. And as much as is in us right now, we just push it open. And we say, come in. Act in ways that only you can. Command these wounds that we put in front of you. We desire to be well. We are willing to be well. Begin this work of healing so that tomorrow is not like today in ways that we can give witness to. God, we don't know any magic words to conjure you, but we also don't need them. It's on you to give witness to yourself in this time as we wait, as we hope, as we look as we trust the word of the one who said the kingdom is near and new things are possible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.